These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. Okay, well, I want to welcome everyone to this roundtable discussion about the uh, formation, development, and accomplishments of the National Sustainable Agriculture uh, Coalition over the past three decades. Uh, you know, each of you played a real important role in the work of NSAC and its predecessor uh, efforts. And we want to thank you for doing this uh, work, first of all, and for coming here today to be a part of this discussion. So we're going to kick things off just uh, with a brief introduction from everyone. We'll start on that side with Fred. Well, my name is Fred Kirshenman, and I'm affiliated with the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University, and also the uh, Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture in New York. And my wife and I live in Ames, Iowa. Ann Robinson, and I'm currently Midwest Regional Office Director for the National Center for Appropriate Technology, and I am in Des Moines. And I'm Michael Sly with the Rural Advancement Foundation International in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. And I'm Chuck Hasselbrook. I'm, I was formerly with the Center for Rural Affairs in Nebraska. I'm Mary Fund. I'm with the Kansas Rural Center. I'm also a certified organic farmer. Ferd Hefner, Policy Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition in Washington, D.C. Margaret Crum, Policy Director for the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute in East Troy, Wisconsin. Francis Dickey, I'm a farmer from Southeast Iowa here. Um, I have a grass-based organic dairy farm, and we process our milk on the farm and market it all locally. My name is Amy Little. I'm currently the Policy Director for the Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. I'm Dwayne Sand. I'm on the staff of Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, Des Moines, Iowa. My name is Teresa Alpine, and I'm with Practical Farmers of Iowa, and I'm located in Ames, Iowa. And I'm Dwayne Havorka, Executive Director of the Nebraska Wildlife Federation, and I live near Elmwood, Nebraska. Thank you, everyone. Well, we all know how uh, important Ferd Hefner has been to this effort over the past few decades, and a steady and continuing force for NSAC and, the, and its predecessors. So we thought it would be a good idea to start off with Ferd, to have him talk for a while about how he got interested in sustainable agriculture, sustainable ag policy, uh, even preceding the more formal efforts going back to some of your earlier days, then taking us up through uh, the formation of, uh, we, we picked 1988, I believe is the real start date, talking about some policies that uh, have come, come on the books and some successes kind of take us through each farm bill over the next, say, 15 or 20 minutes to kind of key our own thinking on our discussion that we'll take up after that. So, Ferd? Great. Well, I'll, I'll do my little... Uh, personal intro like everybody else will do and then talk a little bit more about um, the organization over the over the years so for me it really was uh, the world food crisis or the so-called world food crisis of the 1970s that was really the setting I was in undergraduate I 
was studying agricultural development and working on the student farm and um, getting more and more interested in food policy in general. Um, and then watching in the farming community the go-go 70s of overinvestment and uh, speculation and uh, the Russian wheat deal and the, the run-up in prices and the whole that whole thing. So that, that was the context I was coming to Washington, D.C. for. I came to Washington, D.C. because I didn't wind up going to India. I was supposed to be there on a three-year agricultural development project, and it fell through at the very last minute. I had been doing some student organizing at the college level around the 1977 Farm Bill, and when India fell through, I decided... Well, I'll go to Washington and see what this farm bill thing is all about. I hooked up with a, a member of Congress who was on the Agriculture Committee and uh, saw the last five or so months of that process and became intrigued. Um, I was also working for the National Student Association on their responsible agriculture program, which was their land grant accountability project at the time. Um, so that, that was sort of the context, and um, I wound up... Um, becoming a world hunger intern for the United Methodist Church, which is why NSAC to this day is in the United Methodist building on Capitol Hill. And um, lo and behold, um, something called the Agriculture, American Agriculture Movement um, came to Washington, D.C. I was supposedly working for the um, Interreligious Task Force on U.S. Food Policy on International Agricultural Development, but being the youngest one on the staff, when AAM came to town, they all said, we need to do a whole lot more on domestic ag policy. And they looked around the room and the last one hired and the youngest one in the room got the job. <laughs> so I was thrown in, um, you know, having come from no farming background um, into this whole milieu. So I worked on reclamation reform. Uh, I worked on the farmer-owned grain reserve, the international emergency wheat reserve, um, the so-called raisin bill. For those who go back to that era, which um, did several things, but created the limited resource loan program that still exists to this day, um, and 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 got more and more involved in uh, Secretary. Bob Berglund's uh, structure project, as it was called, at the Department of Agriculture. And um, that, of course, ultimately resulted in the, the book, A Time to Choose, and the policy recommendations there. And so I was sort of a religious community advisor um, to that project. And, um, and I did not really have much connection at that point to the organic work that Garth Youngberg was doing. I didn't meet Garth until several years after that, but those two reports, of course, came out and were published just at the end of what became the single term of the Carter administration and were quickly thrown in the trash heap um, uh, the following January when President Reagan came into office. So that, that um, was all part of the context that I was dealing with. Um, a lot of things about those early farm bills that I worked on that might be interesting for another time, but a couple of relevant things perhaps. In the 1981 farm bill, there were three lobbyists, including myself, who were working on conservation compliance, um, getting thrown out of every office that we went into. Um, conservation compliance, what are you talking about there? There's no quid pro quo for getting farm subsidies. And, 
Um, you know, we did, we got absolutely nowhere on that in 1981, but obviously four years later, it became the law of the land. So that was, that was an interesting experience. Um, also, uh, for the 85 Farm Bill, uh, formed a coalition of consumer, environmental, international development assistance, uh, family farm uh, groups, and produced the book Beyond, or the booklet Beyond Crisis, uh, which set out policy proposals for that 1985 Farm Bill, many of which, though not all of which, got adopted. Um, and it was probably the last time in Farm Bill history where that broad a coalition actually functioned as a coalition. So that was kind of a, another interesting experience. But, you know, the, the, the very title of that, Beyond Crisis, sort of suggests that, you know, from, from the so-called world food crisis of the 70s, we were now in the so-called farm crisis of the 1980s. I always say so-called because it's not like these crises ever go away, really, uh, though they take particular forms at particular periods of time. So um, it was in that context then that I started, uh, I, I had left the Interreligious Task Force on U.S. Food Policy and uh, went out um, doing work on my own for various organizations, was working on tax reform bill, and that's when I first met Chuck and worked with him on that, uh, worked for the Land Stewardship Project after meeting Ron and um, uh, did work on um, a crisis that was developing with insurance companies taking over farmland and ripping out conservation structures. That in turn got me involved with the Conservation Coalition. So the Conservation Coalition in DC of all the major environmental and wildlife organizations really got started in 1986-87 and has continued right up to this day. So um, I'm by far and away the oldest continuously serving Conservation Coalition uh, member um, that's still active. Um, so I was doing that. I was working for the Center for Rural Affairs on a beginning farmer uh, piece of legislation that became part of the, the bailout bill for the farm credit system in 1987. And then lo and behold, because of these various connections, um, there had been meetings in Omaha in late 87 that I wasn't at, but then uh, Ron and Chuck called and said, why don't you come out to Wilder Forest um, for this meeting in early 1988? And um, that became the founding meeting for this whole thing. And um, Bob Gray, who had left American Farmland Trust and was working for NCAT and some other organizations, and I came out together. Um, it wasn't clear to us at all, you know, we sort of had maybe an inkling that one of us <laughs> might have some work to do as a result of this meeting, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't clear at that point in time um, exactly what was going to happen. And then uh, later, uh, a second meeting in 1988 in Wisconsin, um, Kathleen Merrigan and Susie Dietrich and I came out for that one. And that sort of, I think, sort of solidified the, the, uh, the work that I launched into at that point as a, as a you know, as a hired uh, contractor. In fact, I remained as a hired contractor and all the way through hiring the first um, SAC employee and then I switched over to employee status at that point. So I forget what year that was. I think it was 93, perhaps. So, so it was quite a period of time where 
I was doing it on a contract basis. Um, so anyway, that, that's sort of a little bit about how I got there and, and just sort of, you know, fast forwarding um, through the now 27 years, um, I, there have been, by my count, oh, if you count both MSOG, SAC, National, Camp, National Dialogue, National Campaign, National SAC, and now NSAC, there have been upward, there are definitely over 75 of meetings, the, the annual and biannual meetings, um, which, which is quite a, quite a few. I've sort of lost track. I used to keep a log of where each one was, and I've sort of <laughs> stopped doing that. Um, there are over 40 flyings. I know there's been over 40. I don't know the exact number, but um, it's a very substantial number. One thing that I think is very interesting is from that very first meeting, we set up the twofold membership structure of, we call it different things over different periods of time, but right now we call it participating members and represented members. Um, and while that's taken different forms over time, it, it's still the way we work today. And I think it's been enormously useful to the movement to be able to have that big tent place where lots of people can be involved and, and uh, at a slightly higher level of participation being in that uh, represented member category. So I think that's worked well for us. You know, we went through the, the establishment of the regional SOGs, of which at one point there were five, now there are three. Um, and the national dialogue and the national campaign and then national SAC became national SAC and then eventually the merger happened and now we're at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Um, so there was that whole history. We've been through five farm bills together uh, under, under this rubric and um, 27 appropriation bills. Um, <coughs> though you kind of have to cheat to say, we worked on 27 bills, they all did not come to fruition. <laughs> though most of them did. We've had, um, at least on the MSOG SAC part of the story, we've had five issue committees. We started with three, research, conservation, farm programs, and beginning farmers. Those three still exist. You know, so they've existed from 1988 through 2015 and on into the future. That's an incredible continuity. And we added marketing and rural development, now marketing food systems and rural development in the mid-90s, and then have added food systems and food safety uh, much more recently. On the campaign side of the story, there were five, six, seven committees at different times. Um, those have all been back incorporated since the merger into the five that we have today. But those are really important communities of knowledge and experience that um, have a very long continuity over time. Um, you know, there's so many issues, you can't even begin to try to cover them in a few minutes. I, I, I don't know if other people find it useful, but in my mind, I, I divide issues into three categories. The barriers that we're trying to remove. So early on, the work we did around the integrated farm management program and trying to put planting flexibility into the farm program, right on up to the current day where we're working on whole farm revenue protection to try to make crop insurance work for diversified operations and many, many many points uh, in between, but sort of removing those barriers that are stopping sustainable farmers from being able to uh, benefit in the same way that others do. So that's one category. Then the, the, another category that in my mind, I 
hold uh, as a way to categorize things is beachheads. The, all the places at the Department of Agriculture and elsewhere where we've tried to seed our own programs and develop our own alternatives. So starting with the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program at the very, very beginning, um, uh, uh, you know, through so many others, National Organic Certification Cost Share and Farmers Market Promotion and uh, Value Added Producer Grants, so many different things right up to today where we're working on the Farm to School Program this year as Congress does child nutrition reauthorization and many, many others. And then the third category is sort of the big structural changes, and those are definitely been the hardest. Um, we've succeeded, I think, to a significant extent in the conservation arena, conservation compliance, side saver, adding uh, the working land conservation programs, which did not exist at all when we started, and now they're the biggest of the programs. Um, but on the structure of agriculture side, on the payment limits, on the competition, contract ag reform, um, those have proven much, much harder. And um, we continue to speak truth to power, but we don't necessarily prevail. So um, th those are just you know some of the things uh, that we've tried to tackle. Uh, one way to summarize it perhaps is, um, you know, in this last farm bill, we can, for those sort of beachhead programs that we've been working so hard on. We came away with nearly a billion dollars worth of mandatory farm bill spending. Um, you know, back in 1988, I don't think any of us could have imagined <laughs> um, having Congress put a billion dollars into programs that we had created and, and worked to develop. Um, we've got 70 million acres in the conservation stewardship program, the largest conservation program by acreage, at least, if not by dollars that we've ever had. We have over 3 million acres in the Wetland Reserve Program. There's been over 8,000 beginning farmer down payment loans. Um, uh, we've got, you know, cover crops suddenly going from something that we always cared about and talked about <coughs> to something that much more conventional growers are now talking about and soil health, which was always fundamental uh, for our movement is now becoming a talked about thing. So lots of signs of progress. On the other hand, you know, mid-scale agriculture, which we set about to try to uh, save and promote and enhance, um, it, the numbers are, are not great. Um, you know, if you look at hog and dairy sector, I mean, over the course of time we've existed, the numbers have just gone down, down, down. Um, you know, just, um, there's, you know, in some ways there's just lots of things that, um, have not been successful, but on the other hand, um, you know, at the, at, when we started, we probably didn't talk a whole lot about local and regional food systems. Now we talk about it all the time. It's a growing market. It's, uh, we, Start, when we started, beginning farmers were um, something that we worked on really hard, but the numbers were really low, and now the numbers are much better. They're not where they need to be, but you know the level of interest is, and the amount of opportunity is definitely growing. So it's 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 definitely mixed, um, but I think um, we've accomplished a lot. So when I 
Ron asked to, you know, send out some of those early minutes, and I dug through the files and found those that set that he sent out from 1988. And some, when just reading through those again for the first time in a long, long time, things that struck me was how much continuity we've had, how much continuity in leadership and people and committees in the way we operate in our vision our message, our priorities, an awful lot of continuity, an awful lot of perseverance over that period of time. Um, so the way I like, the way I try to wrap it up for funders often, and I think it's a good way to wrap up this little piece is that, you know, we've never been a huge organization by any means, if you look at budget and staffing, um, but we've had the magic of having this strong grassroots uh, presence connected through really viable organizations on the ground and uh, a small and dedicated staff in Washington. And when we've put that all together, we've gotten tremendous, tremendous bang for the buck. And we've probably done more with less money than most organizations that have worked in the food and ag space um, during that same period of time. So I think we have a lot to be proud of and also clearly a lot to work on. Thank you for that was just superb. Um, I think it uh, piqued a lot of us, uh, our memories ourselves for comments I wanna get from you all. I think about that statement uh, about the continuity, part of the continuity is the rest of you around this, this table. So we wanna hear from all of you. Later in the meeting, we'll talk more in a little more detail and a more freeform conversation around these successes and the challenges and even failures about them to, to get that on the record and also to kind of prepare the way for a further discussion about what goes, what happens next and how do we build on the successes and take on the challenges in the future uh, both as uh, organizations around the country, but also NSAC's role and, and how NSAC can be a more, even more potent force uh, in, the, in the future. But for now, what I want to have happen is that we want to hear from each of you. I'd like each of you to talk for about five minutes or so about your own backgrounds briefly, how you became interested in sustainable ag, particularly sustainable agricultural policy, how the groups you were working with uh, back in the day when you became most involved with federal policy, what was happening on the landscape and what were your concerns that sort of led to the uh, decision to really be involved in federal policy. So uh, Fred Gershman's agreed to kick it off and we'll kind of go around back and forth and hear from all of you uh, over the next hour or so. Fred. Well, um, you know, my involvement with agriculture started when I was born. I was born in our, actually in our farmhouse on our farm in North Dakota. <clears throat> and um, uh, my father and mother started farming there in 1930 when uh, they first got married. And that was still in the midst of the Dust Bowl. And uh, that was, uh, that experience was very formative for my father because he understood that the Dust Bowl wasn't just about the weather. It was also about the way farmers farmed. And so he was determined that that would never, ever happen to his farm again. So he became a big advocate of taking care of land. That was important. I can still remember him lecturing me when I was four years old about how important that was. And that kind of shaped, uh, you know, a core ethic, I guess, for me. And um, uh, and then I, you know, I and I was engaged in our farm. I started driving a tractor when I was seven and a combine when I was 12. Um, 
And I thought probably that I would farm, but my father also was insisted that I get as much education as I could. So going to college was never up for debate. And uh, so off I went to college and I got a scholarship and went off to graduate school and uh, finally earned a PhD. And then what was I going to do? Well, I started a career in higher education. And during that time, as uh, uh, first a faculty member and then an administrator in higher education, um, I met a student by the name of David Vetter. And David Vetter was the individual who first introduced me to organic agriculture. And uh, passionate for him was what, hap what could happen to the quality of soil if you manage your soil appropriately and as an organic system and you want to re you know, return your waste and all of that. And uh, that then intrigued me and uh, we started doing our garden organically. And, uh, and then in 1976, my father had a mild heart attack and we then decided to leave higher education and go back to our farm and convert it to an organic farm, which we did. And I thought at that time, uh, you know, I didn't even know there was such a thing as an organic market. It was totally focused on how to manage a farm. And I didn't know that there were any other organic farmers in the region back in the, uh, in, in the late 1970s. And then uh, it was, I think, two years after I moved back to the farm, there were three young entrepreneurs, and this is the important part of the story. There were three young entrepreneurs who had inherited some money, and they decided that uh, in, in North Dakota, they decided that uh, there was going to be a market for uh, organic fertilizer. So they thought they would start an organic fertilizer company. And they somehow had the names of a lot of farmers who were farming organically in that uh, Northern Plains region. And so they organized a conference uh, at a hotel in Bismarck, North Dakota, invited all of us to come. And um, so, uh, and one of the things they did was they asked the farmers to tell their stories. And this was the first time that I was in a meeting with all of these farmers who were telling their stories about how to farm organically and what that meant. And during lunch, uh, I was sitting around a table with a group of those farmers and also one of those three young people that had uh, organized the conference. And uh, we were all saying, this is so important to have these conversations with each other. We didn't know that this was even a possibility. We gotta figure out some way to keep this going. And um, so this young guy uh, said, well, you know, if you want, we have a room upstairs and if any of you want, if you'd like to get together and talk about that, about how you could do that, that would be great. And so we said, yeah, that'd be great. And so then he announced at the end of lunch that we were going to have this meeting. And so we thought, you know, if five or six people show up to have that conversation, that'd be great. 30 people showed up. Mm -hmm. And then at that meeting, within an hour, we each took, each of us took certain kinds of responsibilities for how we should do that and make that happen. You know, how do you organize a nonprofit organization, what we need to do, et cetera. And then the following March, we had our first meeting. And uh, I, if I remember, I think there were like 50 people showed up for that first meeting. And, uh, and it was then that we organized uh, what we first called the North, North, Dakota, uh, the North Dakota Natural Farmers Association. And uh, that became then the ongoing group of us. And the thing that's important about this for me is that, in my experience at least, ultimately, uh, what makes these things happen is this sense of community of people working together and learning from each other about how to move things forward. And that then grew, that organization within a couple of years grew. There were not only North Dakota farmers, but South Dakota, some from Minnesota, some from Nebraska, even some from Canada. And so we changed the name to the Northern Plains Sustainable Agriculture Society because the term sustainable then became important. 
And of course, that organization is still operating. And um, I don't think as an organization that we have been uh, heavily engaged in terms of national policy. We've always been more focused on you know, what works in our own region and how we could make things happen in our own regions. Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, you know, our uh, awareness of uh, NSAC and its importance and uh, supporting it in various ways has been true uh, ever since then. And uh, there have been some individual leaders also within the organization that have been critical. Uh, Teresa Podel, for example, who was one of its first uh, executive directors, did an amazing job of uh, focusing the organization and uh, moving it forward. Uh, and, uh, Terry and Janet Jacobson have been very engaged in it. So there were a number of individuals that I could go on and name. But, um, you know, to me, that's one example of uh, things happening from the bottom up at the grassroots level because people recognize the importance of community, of engaging each other, working <coughs> with each other in order to move forward for the common good. It was never about how we each individually could be successful. It was how, the, you know, how we could become part of that common good, which would benefit all of us. So. Thank you, Fred. That's very good. I, uh, the, what you were saying at the end made me think about something that maybe will come up in more detail. But what always struck me, and even going back and reading some of these notes, was the fact that one of the deepest fundamentals of that, what's all a part of NSAC, is the democratic process, a really deep commitment to it. Uh, and, and we remember some of those meetings where you think, oh man, this democracy isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's just so difficult to do it, but it's gotta be done that way if you're gonna be successful in the long run and have people really engaged. So, and uh, the way you uh, helped make that happen, Fred's been really important as an example with the, uh, with the Northern Plains group, so. Well, I'd like to hear next from uh, Duane Havorka. Well, I grew up a city kid in Lincoln, Nebraska, but my parents were both farm kids. So my dad grew up on a farm in Southeast South Dakota around Tyndall and Tabor and his family still farms up there. Um, and he worked for the Soil Conservation Service, the precursor of the Natural, National Resources Conservation Service um, for a lot of years. Uh, my mom grew up on a farm in Palisade, Nebraska, uh, out in Southwest Nebraska. And my grandfather actually had one of the first water rights on the Frenchman Canal. Um, so it sort of introduced me early to, to farms and spent you know, time on farms in summers and holidays and things. Um, so I kind of got into organic gardening early, but it was really, I think it was about 1992 when I was uh, volunteered for the Nebraska Wildlife Federation uh, Public Policy Committee and then joined the board not long after that when I started getting into wildlife and, and natural resource policy in Nebraska. And not long after that, Chuck Hasbrook and the folks from the center invited me up to a gathering they were having of conservation groups and others to talk about kind of those linkages between agriculture and um, wildlife and uh, uh, kind of introduce me to the whole sustainable agriculture um, stuff uh, and organization. And uh, if you look at Nebraska and you start looking at a landscape level, you know, it's, it's less than 2% public land. So if we're gonna save wildlife and have wildlife in Nebraska, you can't just look to parks and natural areas. You've really got to go to the 95% of the state, which is farms and ranches. And if you're gonna have wildlife there, 
you know, you got to look to what's the biggest impact on those day-to-day decisions, and it was really the farm bill decisions. So there were farm bill conservation programs, the commodity programs, insurance programs, that what was really driving wildlife decisions on the land that made a difference for wildlife in Nebraska, it was that federal ag policy. And that became very clear. And if, you know, even at the time, there's probably over $100 million a year that was coming into the state for USDA conservation and other programs. Um, and that dwarfed what our State Game and Parks Commission was spending. And so, you know, however you diced it, if you cared about wildlife in Nebraska, you had to look at those public lands. And so you had to look at federal policy because that's what was driving those day-to-day decisions. So. Um, we made the decision early as, as an organization at that time, and I was kind of the guy who was leading the charge, so I got to go to join the Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, and um, so we've been longtime members there, and it's always been just a terrific opportunity to learn about the stuff and to engage in the discussions um, to get a better understanding. So um, over the years, we... At, Nebraska Wildlife Federation were the state affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation. And at the time, there was not much of an egg policy program at NWF, but we and some other affiliates in South Dakota and you know Dakotas and Kansas and Iowa who were recognizing how important this was, kind of dragged NWF into the fray. And now they've got a pretty active um, policy program uh, that they developed over the years. So I, you know, I think that's the that's what got me started and got me involved and, and kept me going. And I think that you know Fred mentioned the sense of community um, with the people that were in those meetings, and it was it was a commitment of people who were who were trying to do the right thing. And the great thing was, so many of them were doing the right thing on the land. I mean, it wasn't you know a bunch of policy wonks like me sitting around dreaming up ideas. It was farmers and ranchers and people who worked directly with farmers and ranchers who were talking about, you know, what's going to make a difference and what's going to really make a change. And so that was, I think, part of what's kept me interested and excited and and part of the part of the movement. Thank you, Dwayne. You touched on something that I've been (coughs) grateful about with you over the years and and, uh, is the fact that over time, there's been various relationships with the, uh, the National uh, Conservation, National Environmental Organizations, and there's been some difficulties in some of those and different priorities and things like that. But keeping you involved in bringing in the, the National Wildlife uh, Federation has been really important to this effort and, and it's helped make them a leader and a real ally for the most part on all these, all these struggles. So that's been very important to the, to the movement. So thank you. And at the time that I got involved in uh, SOG, I was the National Agricultural Specialist for the Isaac Walton Lake of America. And that uh, organization was concerned with many of the same types of policies that Duane discusses uh, in terms of our priorities were wildlife, water, and soil, really. And those concerns um, had been with me for a long time since growing up on a farm in Missouri, a century farm, uh, growing up uh, as the kid of especially a father who was a strong conservationist. Um, 
uh, whose interests especially revolved around wildlife and his love of hunting, actually. So um, that had a big influence on me, but growing up on a farm and all the hard work, I had no interest actually in um, continuing to be involved in agriculture when I went to undergraduate school until I started getting involved unexpectedly in environmental issues there and reading Wendell Berry's Unsettling of America uh, and some others, uh, writings certainly, realized how by working on agriculture, which is where I came from, and the kind of rural communities that I came from and my generations of my family came from, that I could affect wildlife and water and air and um, energy. So uh, I started getting involved in those issues and helping lead uh, an organic study group at the University of Missouri, and then um, similarly involved in activities at the University of Wisconsin in grad school, and um, got the opportunity to work for the Isaac Walton League uh, as I left graduate school and moved to Minnesota, where somehow I had the good fortune of being recruited by Ron Cruz of the Land Stewardship Project to become a board member of LSP. And I think that's one of the ways that uh, I came to SOG, probably. Uh, <clears throat> that experience over the years, uh, in large part for me, revolved around the Conservation Committee. And I was one of the uh, first uh, leaders of the uh, SOG Conservation Committee that became the NSAC. Um, conservation Committee. I was in that position for a decade, um, so I really got to see uh, quite a bit of that early, early discussion and priority setting to be deeply involved in it and uh, be learning from it, uh, learning so much. It was a wonderful opportunity to work with smart, dedicated, and caring colleagues who were such good listeners and was so respectful of everybody in the room. And um, as we tried to work for more enlightened, progressive, balanced uh, pos positions for rural America that could have so many benefits uh, for producers, but certainly also for the soil, water, and wildlife that uh, were the priorities in my job description. I loved working with everyone and especially valued the opportunities to help find common ground with uh, producers, farmers who participated. Uh, one of the highlights of my involvement with um, SOG and NSAC was putting together a working group of um, a lot of different people came from many different angles to work on wetlands policy. And we came out with a position paper. Um, I believe Fred Kirschelman was one of the people who uh, was involved in that, and Terry Jacobson uh, from uh, Northern Plains, and a number of others too. We came out with a position paper that got quite a bit of interest around the country. It was uh, certainly timely. And I believe that it really helped set the stage for the Wetlands Reserve Program that I got to work on later in uh, various ways, even after leaving the Isaac Walton League. Um, seeing what we were able to accomplish, even now and then, uh, helped me through the years believe that 
you should really go for it. And it's fine to tilt at windmills because now and then uh, you really can uh, have an impact. And also, uh, it's always been an antidote for me to uh, cynicism that I hear around me because, you know, some of the things that we did would not have seemed at all possible <laughs> with the small staff and the um, just the, the challenges and the odds against us. Uh, but if you just took an issue forward and talked, started talking to people about it, even as crazy as they might think that it was in the beginning, pretty soon, with Verd's help, you could see it turning into national legislation. Um, it's been amazing. And I believe our work really has made a difference. Uh, but working on progressive policy, uh, as has been alluded to, is a never-ending policy process. And... I'm thankful for the long-term commitment and energy of so many, including especially FERD, who um, continues to tilt at those windmills and make it possible for some of the kinds of um, policies and programs that then I worked on after leaving the Isaac Walton League and leaving involvement with the Sustainable Ag Coalition in terms of wetlands and water quality and watersheds and uh, local foods, and now uh, crop insurance program reform through the whole farm revenue protection program. So um, yeah, I feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to be involved in the Sustainable Ag Working Group and the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. And I want to say thank you to all of you. Thank you, Anne. And speaking of uh, tilting at windmills, I believe you're also now involved in a the Herculean task of taking on Iowa's rivers, right? With the Iowa Rivers Revival, you've been involved in that process. And we've heard a lot about the condition of, of uh, waters in our in our big uh, ag states, especially Iowa. So uh, just wanted to make note of that. I don't know if you have anything to say about it, but uh, important work goes on. Yeah, thanks. So now we'll hear from Teresa, Practical Farmers and other things. To state the obvious, I'm always surprised at how many people don't understand how important policy is to what happens on our landscape and what hard work it is to get that policy. Just over and over again, people just kind of assume there's going to be funding for sustainable ag programs. Even people who work on those programs uh, don't understand what it takes to get there. So. I joined the Midwest Sustainable Ag Working Group as the director in the early 2000s. Our first meeting, the first meeting I went to was in East Troy, uh, Wisconsin. And um, it was really exciting to see the people come in from all over, greet each other, sit down, get acquainted again. Um, I thought it was really exciting to see the democratic process in action. So everyone goes around the room, talks about what they're up to. Um, and then it's time for Ferd Hefner to give his Washington report. He gets up, he's barefoot, um, <laughs> pretty casual. And I was astounded. I, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't believe how knowledgeable, well-spoken, charismatic he was. And I've been even more impressed with him over the years since then. He's just a wonderful, wonderful person. So um, uh, MSOG and what has now become NSAC is really 
one of the most effective coalitions I've seen. And that's because of this Washington presence with very knowledgeable people and the strong grassroots constituency. So uh, there, there's always some ground truthing of what the policies are going to be with those working on the ground. So um, I went from MSOG, what was then MSOG, to lead Practical Farmers of Iowa. And that's a group with a very widespread uh, grassroots constituency. And I've seen through the years what, how much our farmers have benefited from the programs that NSAC has worked on. Uh, for example, we have had a lot of SEER grants throughout the years that have really helped us do a lot of on-farm research and demonstration, less so in recent years um, with SEER. But equip, equip has been just absolutely huge for, for our farmers to get cost share to do good practices. And same with the conservation stewardship program as well. So it's really been a wonderful, um, wonderful example of how people can come together and really accomplish um, various uh, policy changes. And um, I've been thrilled to be a part of it. Great. Well, that practical farmers is a really good example of that ground truthing. I think it's just more and more ground is being truthed as a process all over over Iowa. As a native Iowan myself, I'm really grateful for that. I think you said you have something like three thousand members right now. Just under three thousand. And most of them are farming in some way, are they not? Three fourths are. Three fourths. It's yeah. really good. So it's very impressive. Yeah. Thank you. Well, now we're going to go to the other side of the room and on the other part of the country. A lot of our discussion is coming as out of the early days of, uh, of, the, of the Midwest saw it, but here we have a representative of ongoing long-term work uh, more in the southern part of the United States. Right. Um, <clears throat> there are many streams that uh, fed into this national effort, and in the south, uh, uh, it was it was a different set of issues that really drove us toward federal policy. Um, I come from a long line of uh, family farmers and ranchers in West Texas, and uh, uh, my my dads and uncles all went off the war and came back and went to the GI Bill and became uh, into modern agriculture. And I remember the debates between my grandfather and my uncles over the question of uh, the future of farming, what, should we use all these pesticides? Should we get big or get out? What should, you know, what's the direction? And uh, I ended up siding with my grandfather because he had survived the, the Dust Bowl and had had a, a very diversified farm. And so when I thought I'd go into farming, I wanted to farm a different way. You know, we were, my generation of farmers were struck by Silent Spring and, and concerns of pesticides. And we, we wanted to farm a different way. And uh, we didn't really know how to do that, except, uh, you know, through finding other people, like Fred said, who maybe were a little further along the curve. Uh, but as hard as farming was, uh, it seemed to us as the drumbeat got bigger and bigger around kind of the butts uh, uh, policy of get big or get out. And if you weren't making money, you needed to get a bigger truck. Uh, many of us kind of got involved in the, in the uh, American ad movement and began to look at those issues and, and think, well, maybe there's a problem with the policies. And it was kind of like what we called back home, they just were playing ass backwards. 
we rewarded farmers to do the wrong things and we penalized them for trying to do the right things. And so about that time, the farm crisis uh, started to really peak. And so I decided I would take a little sabbatical from farming and just go fix that problem. <laughs> I'd get right back to farming. I thought it would just be, you know, not that difficult. So I, I looked around and I decided to join the uh, Rural Advancement Foundation because they had a long track record back to the Great Depression and worked with sharecroppers and in trying to pull agriculture out of the last Great Depression. So I thought that was a good place to go work. And I was going to go work on seeds and organic and all these positive in initiatives. And my first assignment was to go and organize a tri-racial farmers organization and hotlines to prevent suicide of farmers in the farm crisis. And so uh, that was a fair amount of work across the country, a massive amount of farming farmers going out, very much like the recent housing bubble, but worse because it was not only, you weren't just losing your home, you were losing your way of life and everybody on your farm was losing their way of life. And, and it was a, a massive undertaking nationally. And so there's a great deal of organizing and we were involved in the Save the Family Farm Coalition. That was the thread that brought us into federal policy. And we were wanting to, uh, create an environment where farmers could have access to fair credit and they could have fair prices and we could address the environmental issues by putting that package together. And so we had worked with uh, Weaver out in Oregon on an organic bill in 1984 that went nowhere, but he had a young uh, staffer named DeFazio who later turned out to be a pretty good ally. Um, and I think I met Ferd during that period of time. Um, and we also worked on the 85 Farm Bill trying to get the Credit Act passed, uh, trying to get the Family Farm Act passed, and also LISA. Uh, we were trying to get funding for sustainable agriculture and research in that Farm Bill. And so uh, I think that's where our thread came into this, was trying to address these issues of, of, of justice and of, of fairness and realizing that uh, you could have the right practice and you could even develop uh, uh, customer demand. But if you had the wrong policies, you were not going to be able to change the paradigm so that it really took all three and they have to kind of come together in a synergistic way if you're gonna shift. And uh, that was the opportunity we had with the Organic Foods Production Act is being able to have consumer demand and put some policies that were encouraging it with farmers who had the right practices. And so uh, we've been a part of uh, creating Southern SOG for the uh, same reason that Chuck and others had created the Midwest SOG. We thought, well, hell, Chuck can't just have something in the Midwest. We gotta have something in the South. And, and it was isolation in the South that really drove us to create that Southern uh, coalition because like Fred was saying, uh, farmers were out there and they knew no one else that were doing it. They were alone. They were trying to reinvent the wheel on their own. And we said, well, can't we put all these people together and accelerate change? And then it became clear that having a Southern thing was not enough. We needed to, to bond with the Midwest and the Northeast. And we had to build a bigger coalition if we were to um, turn this uh, ship around. So um, that's... Uh, 
taken a lot longer than I thought. It turned out it's a lot more like watching a tractor rust to change federal policy. <laughs> <laughs> Fixing it, but I, I think his bird has eloquently said, if we stay the course, we can really make a difference. And uh, I do agree that the bigger looming issues of structure and competition and and restoring the democracy is is a lot about where our work has to go. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your perspective and more especially appreciate the fact that while you have gone back to the farm somewhat, this break you were taking has continued to extend and <laughs> we, we hope it continues for quite a while longer. <laughs> Thank you. Dwayne. Thank you. Uh, we asked for, for some personal background. Uh, I started my career in soil and water conservation about 40 years ago, and I was an employee of the Soil Conservation Service for seven years during the 1970s. And I enjoyed the work immensely, but frankly, I watched an incredible amount of backsliding as far as soil conservation, water protection, and wildlife habitat. The, uh, Export years of the 70s and the high commodity prices did incredible damage. And so I'd had great hope for what the federal government could do during uh, the Carter years. And, and when Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, I took him at his word that government was the problem and that he was not going to help government do much of anything. And I started looking for other ways to use my talent. And I uh, decided that private sector initiative might be a better use of my time. And uh, so I approached a, a new organization in Iowa, the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation. And it's a statewide land trust. Uh, and uh, at the time I approached them, they had a grand total of four employees and were wondering from month to month whether they would meet payroll. Uh, I presented to their executive the grand idea that since you do not have a soil and water program, and I want to do soil and water in the private sector, I'll raise all my own money from private foundations if I can be affiliated with you. And uh, he referred that as to a deal he could not refuse. And um, so I've been there ever since. Uh, as far as when we became involved in federal policy, um, as a statewide land trust, Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation was not telling and advocating to its members that we were, were a public policy organization at all. And the original founders really didn't intend for it to be. But we rolled into the farm credit crisis of the mid 80s. And in my assessment of Ronald Reagan was wrong from a standpoint of his ideology screwed up the federal production control programs so bad that we were in a farm credit crisis where there was a bottomless uh, market as far as the price of land. And it was taking banks under as well as taking farmers under. And at that point, our trustees decided that there was some conservation messages that need to come out of the vast emergency intervention that the federal government was going to have to do. So we started giving testimony in 83 about the need for a long-term conservation reserve program involving uh, up to 40 million acres. And that idea took hold. We lobbied lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to get them on board. Most of the national environmental groups were not paying attention to farm policy. 
uh, prior to the 85 Farm Bill. And a small group of environmental groups had an immense impact in the 85 Farm Bill. Uh, we worked with the Iowa delegation uh, uh, and was able to get uh, conservation easement language put into the uh, Farmers Home Administration that farmers could trade a conservation easement for debt forgiveness if the, the federal government held the mortgage on their land. And lands that went into uh, federal ownership because of default on loans, that easements of putting appropriate land use on those farms uh, permanently uh, before they were sold on the market. Um, uh, that piece of legislation was also improved, uh, approved. So, um, so it was the farm credit crisis that really brought Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation into the policy arena. As far as uh, uh, why we became involved with uh, Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group at that time, uh, it was about 1987, I believe, when, when you and Marty Strange convened your first meeting asking groups that had been involved in policy in 85 whether we should create some capacity and preparation for the next event. And frankly, it was a no-brainer from our experience. And, and the reason it's a no-brainer, and I'll share it for whoever hears this in the future, I mean, one was we became involved at the last minute. We had no advanced relationships with anyone in Washington, including our own congressional delegation. Uh, we were trying to work on policy with no permanent presence on the Hill to even track what was going on. Uh, we uh, received pro bono prices from a Connecticut Avenue lobbyist firm um, and still wrote big checks in order to succeed with what we did um, in the, the 85 Farm Bill. And, uh, and frankly, we were just very lucky. Uh, this was a time when we had uh, a Democrat Congressman Berkeley Bedell from Northwest Iowa on the uh, House Ag Committee and Republican Cooper Evans from Eastern Iowa on the House Ag Committee. And at that point, the fact that you had bipartisan support from two committee members was often enough to get legislation passed. Um, uh, so many of our successes, I think, was more dumb luck than anything else. Uh, I'll just uh, wrap this up from a standpoint of, uh, uh, during the 30 years, um, I've been involved in dabbling in policy because often policy was not my primary job during that period. Um, most of the states in the Midwest that have been active in this, we've lost uh, members of Congress. The population growth has happened elsewhere. The, the rural influence, the ag influence is declining. And I'm thrilled that the evolution of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition is as broad and as diverse as it has become because that's truly what it's going to take to be successful. And I'm, I'm very proud of the conservation initiatives. And, uh, and I have to say that Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation really only worked on conservation initiatives. For most of the years, we were a participating member and not represented. Uh, but I'm very proud of a very long list of conservation accomplishments. But what's still missing here and the work ahead of us is I don't think we've even we successfully mitigated the damages of ag subsidies. It's still ag subsidies that 
define the future of soil and water and wildlife in Iowa. And so for our mission of protecting and restoring Iowa's resources, uh, uh, there's no way we can possibly accomplish the mission without being involved in a successful coalition. Good, thank you, Duane. Appreciate uh, your comments and your, your role over the years. And as you were talking about uh, around 1980 or when Reagan came in, I can remember, I think the National Agland Study came out around 79, didn't it? I know Bob Gray worked on it, does that sound about right? Anyway, I can remember that, that startling statistic that for every bushel of corn produced in Iowa, we lost two bushels of soil. And uh, that was such a amazing thing to hear. And just, uh, we know that that sort of thing uh, just couldn't be kept up as rich and wonderful as Iowa soils are. But it was also a real motivator for me and I know it was for, for you too. So. Let's hear from Chuck Hasselbrook. Well, I, uh, I cut my teeth on family farm issues. I, I grew up on a modest size family farm in Northeast Nebraska, sitting around the kitchen table talking about you know, smaller farmers being pushed out. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, one summer, my brother had come home from college and he brought home a report entitled, Who Will Sit Up With a Corporate Sow? about the girls in corporate hog production from the Center for Rural Affairs. And, a year or two later, I was uh, working at the center as a first as a VISTA volunteer and later on staff. Um, and most of my early work focused on family farm issues. I particularly worked um, as we looked at corporate growing corporate hog production um, and just the loss of family farms. Generally, we saw one of the key drivers being tax subsidies, tax policies that essentially through tax incentives subsidized corporate agriculture and. Um, subsidized uh, very large operations to push, push out family-sized farms. So I went to work on that. I worked closely with groups like uh, got uh, state pork producer associations on our side and commodity groups and even some farm barrels on our side. Um, and we pushed through some important changes on that in the 1986 tax reform then President Reagan initiated. And after we got done with that, I, I looked around, I thought that I saw the advent of biotechnology and thought that that it's really going to be a powerful force shaping agriculture, shaping technology. Um, and I wanted to work on how we could shape the direction of biotechnology so that it actually supported uh, family farms and good environmental stewardship. Um, and of course, that was a controversial stand uh, among a lot of groups uh, who support sustainable agriculture, many of which just were against biotechnology. I felt we had to take the bull by the horns and shape it in the right direction, to move it in the right direction. Anyways, part of doing a report analyzing that whole issue, um, I organized a meeting of uh, folks in sustainable agriculture, in family farm groups in Omaha to talk about what's the positive research agenda, whether it's biotechnology or other fields, what are the kinds of research that need to be done if we really want to strengthen family farming? And there was, I mean, what drew me into sustainable agriculture was not only was it good for, for land, um, but also it, it was driving research in directions that developed new knowledge that enabled farmers to use more of their management in the field and in the farm to capture a bigger share of the farm profit by cutting input costs, by improving production, whereas technology had been moving the opposite direction, helping companies sell more expensive inputs to farmers and farmer share profits sink, uh, shrinking. Um, so we pulled together this meeting and we talked about research needs would strengthen family farming. I remember at the end of that, 
uh, Ron Cruz said, uh, well, you know, we ought to have another meeting just to talk about how we can reform commodity programs because commodity programs were really penalizing uh, farmers uh, involved in more sustainable uh, approaches to agriculture. And so um, we did that and, and it evolved into the Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group and the Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. And I have to say that um, as we organized that, we really stood on the shoulders of a lot of people who built the sustainable agriculture movement before it ever got into the policy arena. Fred Kirschman's one of them, Marty Strange is another, uh, Wes Jackson, Dick Thompson, Dave Vetter, you could go on with a list of names. But there was sort of this emerging sustainable agriculture movement out there that hadn't really touched federal policy directly. Um, and we really stood on their shoulders and, and, and built on that. I think one of the most important decisions that was made early on was it revolved around this idea that Ferd alluded to of having a, a coalition of, of groups that were um, fish formally represented um, and then having a broader network of, of groups. And one of Ron Cruz's points was that the coalition ought to be a coalition of that only consisted of groups that worked directly with farmers. And I thought that was really important. Um, and so when we got to Washington and started having an impact on the discussions over the 1990 Farm Bill, um, you know, there was enormous uh, resistance, I would say, a certain feeling of being threatened by certain Washington, D.C. environmental interests that really didn't like us coming in and um, sort of taking part of the influence that they felt should be rightfully theirs. Um, and, you know, so this idea of having a group of upstart farmers and uh, farm-related groups coming into Washington on their turf was, was a real threat to some of those groups. And going through the 90 Farm Bill, um, I thought it was, we just really had to get more strength if we're going to have an impact going forward. So I kind of set out with the idea of building this national group. And at the same time that I'd come to that conclusion, started uh, you know, putting feelers out about how we could build a national group, then People like Michael were starting the Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group and other folks in different parts of the country. And so it just kind of um, grew into that then. Um, and uh, the rest is history. And I, I think that uh, I remember over the years looking back on it, I thought, you know, regardless of what we won or lost, and we had our wins and we had our losses, one of the most important things that came out of that was that we created a permanent presence for sustainable farmers and sustainable agriculture in public policy debates, and that was important. Very important. Thank you, Chuck. And I, I think all of us agree that um, I think everyone shares, I should say, my um, total belief and, and understanding of the very important role the Center for Rural Affairs has played in this all along. I don't think I would have been able to get the uh, land stewardship project going without the guidance of Chuck and Marty and people like that. So we're very grateful and glad it continues to today. Thanks. All right, Amy. So um, my work really goes back to <clears throat> a passion for social justice. And I've been since uh, the late 70s and uh, through the early 80s, I was very active in social change. Um, I was extremely drawn to um, diverse groups working together. And I um, 
got hired onto the national staff of Citizen Action and worked on building coalitions on issue campaigns. We worked on the Clean Water Act. We worked on the Superfund. Uh, we worked on the Shell boycott and apartheid. I was, uh, my mentor was Heather Booth. Um, we had, I had done a little bit with her on the ERA. Um, we worked on housing issues, racial uh, justice, labor issues. Um, I was employed by the Citizen Labor Energy Coalition. We were fighting big oil. And um, I specifically had the work of training people in grassroots organizing and coalition building uh, around the country, um, most in the Northeast, but I was on the national staff. So um, there are many, many issues that we've worked on and people are always saying, oh, you won't win. And we won. We won a lot of issues. And I got to a point in my life where I, my, in my heart, I wanted to work on farming issues. There was always a big joke that I was reading Rodale or Wendell Berry and everybody else was so into the urban issues. So when uh, it was time for me to move on, um, I somehow got hired to uh, begin uh, the national uh, to work with the national dialogue for sustainable agriculture under the direction of the National Sustainable Coordinating Council, and I remember getting hired. And Chuck said to me, "Our problem is we need more power, and there's just a few of us working on it." So. Uh, we set out with the dialogue, and uh, we had a little bit of money, and we held over 100 dialogues around the country, bringing diverse interests to the table. It was mostly farmers and environmentalists and rural folks. Um, but we tried to bring more fringer elements to the table, and we did very well out of that um, that uh, infusion of uh, discussion around policy uh, really lifted up the SOGs. And uh, it was a great thing for the SOGs to get a little bit of money to hold these meetings to talk about uh, farming and the environment and what the impact is on the culture. Um, and raise some consciousness. And I remember so clearly a lot of the feedback from the dialogues was, well, we know now, we, you know, we now have, are developing a consciousness that farmers are stewards. And that was huge. That was, there were environmental, you know, there was this, so many myths out there that we had to bust. Um, you, you know, the whole thing about farmers not being stewards and environmentalists, not being friendly to farmers and uh, more of that kind of thing. And so the dialogues developed under the great leadership of our issue committees on uh, policy options. What, um, what would we like to see in policy? Um, and there, at that time, there was a little bit of a split between who were 
you know, are we doing this policy for a reason or are we just learning and building consciousness? And I kept coming back to um, Chuck saying, we need more power. And, and also having my growth and development in advocacy and trying to win and like uh, being an activist, I just took the thing and said, we're going to campaign for this on the farm bill. And there were people who dropped out at that time. It was a big challenge to get a lot of these fantastic groups to want to do policy. And so uh, I remember going all over the country to little groups and groups of groups and the songs and saying, this is your campaign. Um, you have to make it happen. And so we did um, a lot of that in addition to a lot of outreach. That was a very big thing. We reached out to co-ops. We, <laughs> we reached out to environmental groups that didn't do anything on agriculture. We got social change groups involved. We were, I worked, a lot of the social justice groups that I had worked with, I was working to get them on board. And we brought in a lot of the urban elements um, because so much of the sustainable ag work that was being done was in the rural areas where there was where farming was so big. So getting a lot of that urban element was uh, really important. I remember a time when the Community Food Security Coalition was starting to pull together and they were very focused on urban people. That was more about people and food. And we had to get them into the tent. We had to, if we were going to build power, we had to build a big tent. And uh, I think we may have gone a little too far. It became quite chaotic, chaotic and too big to manage. Um, yeah. But what happened from that was we did build a much broader consciousness in the general public. Um, we built a broader consciousness among single issue groups to take on the importance of farming and food and what would be, you know, how do we sustain our, not our, our local, our regional, you know, our national and our planetary future. And <clears throat> as messy as it was, it did build a lot of consciousness and a lot of activism. And it built the songs. The songs, very, as everybody said, the songs uh, are still here. Some of them are still working in many different ways, not just on, on policy um, to change the food system. Um, I, I Later, we can talk about some of those examples. Um, so, um, I moved on to continue working in social change, worked on a lot of elections, and uh, came back to the Northeast SOG. And um, eventually the national campaign for sustainable agriculture merged with the Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, which was NSOG's advocacy arm. Um, and uh, just to step back a minute, when we were doing the national campaign for sustainable agriculture, Ferd and I were great partners. I was, we got to have that Washington presence as well as the grassroots and coalition building. And so we, that partnership really 
was the center. We had depth through our issue committees, developing really deep policy uh, writing and uh, initiatives, and the campaign provided that breadth that built the power so we could have many more contacts on those people making decisions on foreign policy. So eventually, the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture and the Sustainable Ag Coalition merged to become NSAC. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, I remember uh, by that time I was working more on the philanthropy side of this picture, and I, the, I remember the difficulties of getting the campaign and, and the uh, Sustainable Ag Coalition together. Just not that people wanted it to happen, but just all of that democracy, all the different groups trying to figure out how to put it together. And it's a real tribute to the depth of your friendship and your patience to, that was able to happen. And also, the whole, whole thing of I think we'll really will want to obviously keep these efforts grounded and people really working the land. But the need for that broader constituency, we can talk more about that when we talk about the future, but that's obviously going to be key in that power building. And even like the benefiting of the, the states like Iowa that, and uh, that have lost representation in Washington, but they need the support of that broader country if we're gonna really have success in, in Iowa and the, in the rural states. So it's a very good point you made, appreciate it. So, Mary, tell us about uh, Kansas. The benefit of being one of the later interviews is that I find that I can say ditto to almost a piece of what everybody has said, and so it's uh, uh, really a, uh, humbling and inspiring both. Uh, my personal story parallels sort of the, the emergence of the three organizations in Kansas that are the sustainable ag groups, and that's um, the Kansas Organic Producers, uh, the Kansas Rural Center, and of course the Land Institute, which is the, the, the most influential and the, uh, the, the biggest player, I would say. Um, my personal story is uh, I grew up on a small farm uh, never more than four or 500 acres in size. It was a very traditional farm. We had a very small 20 cow um, grade B dairy. We had probably 10 or 12 sows. Uh, we'd sell feeder pigs a couple times a year. Uh, my father grew alfalfa and clover. He rotated crops. It was the quintessential diversified operation. Um, we uh, uh, he did not use chemicals. He never made that move to uh, pesticides. He did start using a little uh, synthetic fertilizer. So he was known as sort of a Luddite. Uh, so I think I've, I've joked that my um, interest in, in organic farming and sustainable agriculture was, it was genetic because it just sort of was natural to me that we didn't, we didn't do those things. Um, graduated college in 1976. I had a bachelor's in English. Uh, but my, my real education uh, probably came with my, my job that supported me was working in the university library. And that was back with the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> Things were organized very different. Uh, we had a science and technology floor. And I was checking in the periodicals, everything from advertising age to women's wear daily. And all of the scientific journals in between, and including organic farming right in the middle. So I was educating myself by, you know, gleaning everything I could from uh, some of the science journals um, on, I think Ferd mentioned 
the world food crisis. And so there were a lot of things on population and hunger and food production. Uh, and then, of course, there was the, the organic gardening. And I was always uh, an, an avid gardener even as a kid. So um, my husband was getting a degree in philosophy. We were perfectly situated to go back to farming uh, with those two degrees. <laughs> um, everything sort of was coming together in the late 70s. Um, we discovered Kansas Organic Producers, which started in 1976 from a flyer at our local food co-op where we were when we were living in Lawrence. Um, it was the uh, announcement of an annual meeting. And uh, like Fred talked about in North Dakota, there was this gathering. We found our tribe. You know, here were all the people that were like-minded and were um, basically coming together as a social support group, uh, sharing information and uh, uh, learning what worked on their farms and uh, um, not working in policy, though. You know, I mean, we, we dabbled a little with uh, a state certification, but that didn't go anywhere uh, due to, you know, a lot of resistance from uh, conventional ag. Um, the Kansas Rural Center actually was a spinoff of Kansas Organic Producers because like a lot of other organic organizations, uh, the O word scared a lot of people. And we thought we needed a, an organization that could address the broader policy issues um, late 70s, we were dealing with, um, I believe, the Arab oil embargo and uh, high energy costs and a lot of interest and concern about uh, uh, cost of inputs and the, you know, the rising cost of inputs and um, energy on the farm. The Rural Center actually visited the Center for Rural Affairs, uh, the steering committee. Uh, that was, uh, uh, again, names of Jim Lukens from Southern Sog eventually. Um, he started out as a Kansas farm boy uh, and was on our steering committee. Uh, so we set ourselves up um, to you know, sort of a sister organization to the Center for Rural Affairs. I was, we decided to move back to the farm. Uh, my father died and we had sort of slowly been taking over more and more responsibilities there and decided, well, we would get jobs. Uh, and, and farm, and I was working for a community action program, which um, uh, Amy mentioned social justice issues. Uh, I had always been intrigued by Johnson's War on Poverty and that documentary that CBS did years before, and so I, you know, this seemed right, but it was also another education in economic uh, inequities uh, in a rural area that was so rich with resources and production. Uh, Something didn't balance, something wasn't right. Uh, I was approached by the uh, um, steering committee, uh, come to work for us, we don't have any money, um, <laughs> but you can come work for us. Um, like others, I started out as a VISTA volunteer. Uh, and I wasn't doing organizing work, but I was, uh, my first project was to research land and water rights ownership in Southwest Kansas. And that came right off of uh, uh, Wheels of Fortune yeah. at the Center for Rural Affairs, the study on irrigation agriculture, uh, and the, the, who's going to sit up with the corporate sow. Uh, so we did, in fact, I had an internship through the Center for Rural Affairs to finish that work. Um, I think the, the, the Rural Center's involvement in policy issues sort of 
really came to a head or started uh, with the farm crisis. Um, we were sort of the default organization that everybody started calling. Um, at that time, uh, my husband was working for Kansas Legal Services as a paralegal, and he was getting calls from farmers about foreclosures and problems with lenders. Uh, we started working with uh, Gene Severance at the Center for Rural Affairs because he was doing a lot of work on farm credit issues. So we really launched into uh, not only federal but state policy on uh, credit issues and uh, some of the things that were um, happening to, to farmers at that time. Um, we've always had a, a two-pronged approach, um, and it's, it's varied over time, which, which is stronger, but um, the practical on-farm information, we work a lot with farmers on adopting the, the practices that uh, they needed to reduce their reliance on chemicals and uh, input suppliers. Uh, the farm crisis actually you know, sort of jump-started all of that because I, we still work with farmers who are in farming today because they changed their farming practices. Um, the other aspect, of course, was, was policy and uh, um, becoming involved with, uh, I think we were one of the initial 12 states um, in EMSOG and uh, continuing through the years. Um, I think uh, I agree with Michael that the, the structure and competition issues are, they're the hardest, but they are probably ultimately the most critical. Uh, and it's sometimes difficult to get some of that across to the new generation coming in. You know, they think, oh, local food is going to solve all our problems, and it is not. We are still very much in a capitalist economy, and it rules the, the whole show, and how you change that uh, to an economy that works more for people is really the huge challenge. Mm -hmm. um, my husband, I talked to him to explain to him what we were going to talk about today and, and you know, what the future issues were. And, and he said, well, you know, just tell them that we are at the end of the beginning, <laughs> which means we're at a new <laughs> beginning. So uh, I'll close with that. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. I think a number of us will be talking about that more in the sessions coming up about this as we look at some successes, but going forward about these structure issues and how do we make those relevant and make effective change in that area. It'd be really interesting to discuss that. It's uh, it's almost baffling to me, actually. I want to learn from you all about it because it's a really big issue. But uh, last but not least, by any means, uh, oh, Next no, excuse one. me, we got, oh, I, excuse me, I got a, We won't uh, ask him which one no. he thought. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys are, uh, threw me off by the way we're going back and forth, sorry. It's me. Francis first, and then we'll do Margaret. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Well, I haven't been, I've been more peripherally involved in, in, in policy than most of you. <clears throat> I grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota, and um, I went to college and got a degree in music and philosophy. And actually, I went to graduate school on trumpet performance, and I realized that was a good Doc Severance. So I came back and farmed. So on the whole farm for nine years. And in 75 to 76, we converted the farm to organic. I kind of instigated it, but we we um, struggled for years. We read the Rodell, you know, publications and all, and we, you know, we kind of reinvented our own wheel. Um, but we got going pretty good, and by about 1980, I, I wanted to go back to graduate school. Um, so I, I signed up for uh, 
to study soil science. I wanted to, like Michael, I wanted to tell him how to do it, you know. And uh, I found out real quick at the Land Grant University to keep quiet about organic farming. <laughs> one of my professors, I, I told him about it one day for about five minutes, and, and he, he listened, and then he said, well, it depends upon how far back in the horse and buggy area you want to go. <laughs> so I never talked about it again. <laughs> um, so when I finished grad school, I fortunately landed in the position at USDA um, in Washington as a national program leader for soil science. Usually they took department heads from land grant universities, but they got tired of these old guys coming to retire, so they took so many new ones. And it was very interesting, and I, I kind of, it was 1988, just the same time you guys were all getting going. And I, along the way, I kind of heard about this guy, Ferg Hefner, and I looked him up and, and I found there was some kindred spirits, and, and um, I, I believe I met Ann then too. We had the Environmental and Energy Working Group, wasn't it? Met once a month in, in the Capitol. Oh, right, right. So, so I began to find, ferret out some people who had common interests. And what was interesting back then, you know, even sustainable agriculture was a heretic kind of thing. The people in USDA who were working on Lisa and so on were really off the reservation, and you didn't really want to talk about organic. My colleagues at USDA never knew I had been an organic farmer all that while. But, um, <laughs> so I, but in 1992, um, I came back farming in Iowa. I wanted to get back to farming. And uh, it's interesting that between 92 and, and 2002, I was farming. I came back, Fred asked me to come and, and talk at a Senate Ag Committee hearing. And um, I talked to my colleagues at USDA and they, my old colleagues, and they said, give a seminar. So 10 years later, I came back and I gave a seminar, a slideshow of my organic farm and the whole thing. And I couldn't believe the difference. In 10 years, how they had transformed, and, and they were all excited about what I was doing, local foods and organic. And so to see that change back in 1982 when I started graduate school, and you couldn't even say organic to, to you know, in the early 2000s where things were changing. So it's pretty exciting. And now when I look in the, in the news and I see some ag things going on, and I see Senator Grassley quoted, and I see Ferg Hefner quoted, on equal territory, you know, equal status, and it's pretty exciting to see that. So I think we're making progress. Certainly are, and I, I know that you've uh, played an important role in the practical farmers of Iowa, uh, too, and uh, what I've been able to tell. It's been really good. Yeah, well, that's been great. So, thank you. So, now we really will get to uh, Margaret. <laughs> so, I too was a city girl, I was raised in Norfolk, Virginia. And I went to the, not to the land-grant university, I went to the University of Virginia. Got a, I was an English major. And uh, if you're an English major, people think you're going to do something with the law. And <laughs> I went to Washington, D.C., and I got a position with the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. And the position was one of those starting positions, very administrative know, probably very glorified secretary. It wasn't called that, but that's, it was heavily on that support end. But I did make a condition of my employment be that I get trained to be a lobbyist. It was called the Access to Justice Project. And it was a really great project and did a lot of good work. And I happened to get a chance to witness the transition when I started in 79 to the, you know, through the Carter years into the Reagan years. And it was a startling transition and certainly cemented my politics, which were already pretty clear. But um, I became really clear that I didn't want to be in Washington and that there was a lot of derivative talk and style and 
posturing that was just going to be anathema for me. Yeah, I think I was a very good lobbyist. I think people thought I was a good lobbyist, but I thought, boy, as a life, this isn't going to work. And uh, I did one of those workshops, what colors your parachute, you know, kind of who do I want to be when I grow up kinds of workshops. And uh, it became clear to everybody in the workshop and me, at the end, you know, people give you recommendations. And mine, it was clear I wanted to do uh, natural resources work in the third world. I had taken every botany course I humanly could when I was at UVA. Every itinerant botany professor, I grabbed them and such. So it was clear that was where my heart was. And so I went into the Peace Corps. And before I thought, before I put my money into graduate school, I'll put money into the, you know, I'll get some experience on the ground. And I was an agroforester in Cameroon, northern Cameroon, a very arid land work, and it was extremely powerful. Absolutely, one of those, uh, I made the made real that slogan, it's the hardest job you'll ever love, which was the Peace Corps slogan at the time. It was exactly correct. It was terribly hard and extremely fulfilling. And it became clear to me that we are, as a species need to understand how we use the resources that we have before us in a wise way, that we can't just talk about putting putting them in a drawer, that that's not the real world in human society that we are going to be using them. That's going to happen. And how do we use them in a way that improves society but protects the resources? So I, when I was writing all my graduate school uh, applications, I was describing it in terms of sustainable use, small s, and I came back and I, I, had, I happened to get into all the graduate schools I applied to. And so I got an Amtrak pass and toured the country looking at all the graduate schools to consider which one. And I, I hit Wisconsin at a moment uh, when it was super snowy and everyone was grumpy. I come from a very hot place, loved it. And we went polka dancing. And um, <laughs> so that, that really nailed it. But I went to lots of great seminars. I loved the culture, the rural culture that I got to see in that little glimpse and I never went to any other schools after that. It was clear I wanted to be in Wisconsin. And I, uh, I started in January of 86. And uh, had one wonderful semester where I didn't have to pay anything or work at all. But then I got a position uh, as an intern with a group called the Wisconsin Rural Development Center, which had started using a solar, sort of a Saul Alinsky uh, organizing model. So they had really listened. Uh, the founders, there were co-founders, and they'd gone around the state asking people, what matters to you? What are your concerns? And so I came in on the heels of that and, 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 and benefited from the wisdom that had come up from the grassroots. So this is smack in the middle of the farm crisis of the mid-80s. And so what were people worried about? They were worried about use of resources, staying on the farms, creating community culture, helping the rural communities of basically sustainability. And uh, so it was exciting. I ironically got hired despite my, I, I was hoping to like secret away that's policy background. I was really wanting to do, you know, more practical things. And that's not what they wanted to hire me for. He hired me for my quote unquote Washington experience, which was, frustrating to me at the time, and I have later concluded quite wise. He understood, I guess, that was in fact my passion. And I have loved doing the policy work I've done ever since. And so very shortly thereafter, we became involved in a number of initiatives. Our uh, founders really cared a lot about making the land-grant universities respond 
to the interests of the people of the state of Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, we have this thing called the Wisconsin idea, which basically means we take the resources of our university and apply them in the practical lives of people in and around the state, as opposed to, it's kind of like, a, as opposed to the ivory tower. And there was, when I got there, a wonderful group called the F.H. King. He was a soil scientist who wrote Farmers of 40 Centuries. F.H. King Student Group on Sustainable Agriculture, which is how I got to know Ann Robinson. And one of our early, uh, we had sponsored along with some other uh, folks at the university, a wonderful presentation by none other than Dwayne Sand, who came and talked about the uh, conservation programs in the 1985 Farm Bill, and it was in fact very inspiring to me. It was interesting. You never know where the ripples go, do you? <laughs> and uh, so we became very involved and in the university reform aspects of organizing, and that really governed a lot of our thinking. And I began uh, a process, some of you all may remember the uh, windfall profit tax issue, issue, you know, way back in the, the idea that oil companies got money uh, unlawfully and they had to do something about it. And states were given a chance to say, here's how we want to reclaim and use the dollars that you guys got. Some people call them the oil overcharge dollars. Well, in the state of Wisconsin, we had a sustainable agriculture demonstration program that the Wisconsin Rural Development Center led. And I became very active on the advisory council for that. And then began developing this work on creating what is now the Center for Integrated Agricultural Systems and getting it through the legislature, which is, I wrote a note, rather policy-ish for somebody who didn't think she wanted to do policy. And uh, around that time, we heard, you know, knew about this uh, meeting up in Wilder Forest. And uh, I was so grateful to have gone to that meeting and immediately became obvious that it was exactly consistent with what we were hearing from farmers in Wisconsin. It was the same set of issues that people were concerned about. And uh, I will say that early on, I, uh, I really loved the fact that we often had a lot of university people at our meetings, which was healthy. You know, we had a lot of farmers at our meetings, which was critical. And, you know, we have worked over the years at that. It's not easy. But that was why that nested idea was so critical and was so, so, so important to us, as I think that we captured the benefit of people who had the daily obligation to use their resources in a responsible and sustainable way and make money, which is part of sustainability. And we had people who had the leisure to sit back and think about the system and could bring some of the data and some of the conceptual thinking behind it. And so that was really, I think, quite important for our movement. And I, um, an interesting piece of this movement, I think, has been the nurture. I know, Chuck, you gave a tip of the hat to Ron for his support as the center. But I'll give a tip of the hat to the center for a couple of important things. You all put together something, I think it was called the Rural Institute, mm -hmm. right? John, Jim Lukens and I went to one of those. And uh, that really was helpful for me. And you all had the concept, you understood the importance of bringing together sort of small uh, colloquia, we'll call it, to really 
in a structured way, but with plenty of room for input. And we really learned a lot. I've got to say it was one of the most productive trips across the plains I've taken ever. Really powerfully helpful. And you've also established what I hope is, I know, I, I believe it has been, I hope it always will be one of the hallmarks of our movement, which is we haven't been known for our turf and our sharp elbows. I think we've been known for nurturing other groups and their capacities. And I know, I remember the time you helped us get funding uh, on, uh, from the McKnight Foundation. But that's really been important. One of our the issues in our movement, I know one of the res forms of resistance we had early from some of the, net, the grassroots groups who formed in SAC, or SAC and IMSOG, um, was this issue that we don't need another group out there taking money from our limited pots. It was, a, it was a model of scarcity. And I think a couple of things about that, your response has meant, has become a norm, I hope, that we help each other. That's one important response. And another one was a model that LSP started, which we've come to call the Marta Cleveland model. She was a staffer you hired to work on communications. And the idea was, we could as a whole hire staff from our individual groups to do functions for the whole. So in that spirit, Ferd Hefner called up my boss, Denny Kaneff, uh, back in the maybe 89, I expect something like that, and said, you know, I got a call from uh, a funder with the C.S. Mott Foundation, who wants to know what ways we could be, we the foundation could be helpful to the movement. And uh, you had said, Ferd, uh, what we need is support on appropriations. And so uh, it came about, long story short, that I then became the person who did the grassroots thinking and designing and implementation of campaigns for the annual appropriations process for SAC and MSOG, et cetera. And it's kind of worked with the campaign and it's it, it, through all the iterations. And now I don't do that anymore. I assist, but it's wonderful. It's a statement of our growth as a movement that we have our staff and really great grassroots staff and really great policy staff that lead it, but I still assist. And so I am pleased to be able to continue to bring some of that history and understanding and uh, the pleasure of doing some of the grassroots work. But that has been a tremendous insight into the movement's functioning, because you never know how poorly a movement functions or how well it functions as when you're having to do that kind of coordination. You know where the joints need to be oiled when you're doing that. So that's been one of my uh, great honors and privileges to have been able to. My last comment is, you know, uh, Amy, I think you spoke of synergies and I wanna speak of synergy. And that is a lot of our community has, you talked about needing to find power and needing to reach out and find new power. Well, one of the things that is striking to any New York Times reader say, in the last decade is we have awakened the interest of a lot of writers, a lot of consumers, 
a lot of people who understand that we have a consumer food movement. Some people call it disparagingly foodies. Doesn't matter. We have a lot of people who have hit an understanding of the importance of where their food comes from and are at some time at various stages of ripening in their understanding of the role of policy <laughs> in helping to make that happen. But I want to point out that some of the programs that Ferd, I think, glancingly mentioned, because he deserves so much more credit, and we do, than he's much too modest presentation offered. But point out just a few of the programs that we worked on that have enabled that consumer movement to build. Think about the farmer's market promotion program alone. Think of the rise in farmers markets in CSAs, the expansions of CSAs, the direct building of institutional markets. Think of how critical that has been to have as consumers have come to know where their food comes from. That's been a source of inspiration for a new generation the way Wendell Berry has been for a lot of us and others have been for a lot of us. But that has been a critical growth point. Ask yourselves, would that have happened without the programs that we have built through this work? That's one small example of the synergies. Yes, we have not been able to crack the nut yet, the big structural issues. We have to keep asking how we will do it. We will do it. I, don't, I believe firmly we will get there, but we haven't done it yet. In the meantime, we have created a ferment through the programs we have created and the people whose businesses have become spokespeople, whose subscribers have become spokespeople. And that is no small power that we have built. And so we need to remember that we have, that synergy has been one of our strengths. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.